You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 101. If you are interested in finding out the rules of the contest that we kicked off this year for guessing the monthly themes, listen to last week's episode where I talked about the rules in detail. They'll also be on our website. In addition, they'll be in the show notes. So don't forget to check those out. We've had some guesses, but so far nobody's gotten it right. So your chance to get a video message from Mike and choose a movie for next year is still available. Still available. So check out our social media for clues and obviously the four films, five films, excuse me, five films that we'll be doing this month are clues as well. So this week's movie is the 2010 Going the Distance starring Drew Barrymore as Aaron, Justin Long as Garrett. It also features Charlie Day, Jason Sudeikis, Christina Applegate, Ron Livingston, Jim Gaffigan, Natalie Morales, June Diane Raphael, a bunch of our comedy faves, Rob Riggle, Sarah Byrne, Leighton Meester, Mike Berbiglia, big fan of his, and Kristen Schuhl. Would you say, though, that Berbiglia sleepwalked through this film? <laughs> no, he was very active. Yeah, very active. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the director is Nanette Burstein, and uh, she is known for the recent documentary. Kill- she mostly does documentaries. And so recently she did Killer Sally, Hillary, Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John M- M- McAfee. McAfee? McAfee. McAfee. I watched that one after our youngest son kind of told me about it. And that guy was a loon. Yeah, people. People who work in in technology, especially software, those guys are nuts. (laughs) The writer of this film is Jeff LaTulip. I pronounced it LaTulip. I think it's an interesting name. I've never seen that before. Yeah. And the DP is Eric Stielberg, and he did Ghostbusters Afterlife, Hawkeye. Oh, get better, Jeremy Renner. Up up in the Air and Juno. Wow. Up in the Air, Clooney Mm -hmm. and Kendrick? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, we should watch that one again. I haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah, especially right after layoffs is a good time to watch up in the air. (laughs) Okay, sorry. (laughs) Too soon. (laughs) Too soon. (laughs) Let's see. The filming locations are primarily New York City. In fact, there are some L.A. scenes, but I felt like they could easily be done in New York City. So I'm or no, uh, San Francisco. Yeah, it was set in San Francisco. We know that because they have the stock footage of the Transamerica building, which says San Francisco. Right. But I'm what I'm what I meant to say was that I think they what was set in San Francisco were home interiors and office interiors. And that could easily be done in New York. Oh, heck, yeah. It could have been done in Vancouver or yeah. Atlanta. or Yeah. The synopsis for this film is a romantic comedy centered on a guy and a gal who try to keep their love alive as they shuttle back and forth between the aforementioned New York and San Francisco to see one another. The tagline for this one, I only have one for you. It's a comedy about meeting each other halfway. Um, I like it. I'd give it a C. It's okay. It's not fantastic. It's okay. okay. It's okay. 
The trivia that I wanted to share with you is, or one of the bits of trivia. Yeah. The screenplay for this film was featured in the 2008 Blacklist. So the original Blacklisted people, it was because the House Un-American Activities Committee said they were commies and they couldn't work. But for the scripts that are at least now they talk about, everybody likes them, but nobody will make them and they don't know why. And like I said before, this was Dennett's. This is her first fiction film. She has previously only made documentaries and it seemed like with the more recent documentaries she's done that she went back to it after this. So this, this ruined her. <laughs> Which is amazing because I think it's a funny film. But I don't I understand why she wouldn't do more. Let's see if it, it tests your theory. Kick us off with your pickup line, please. So there are airline instructions, but they're barely audible. You know, it's the thing like keep your hands in, inside the crab at all times. But then it's happy birthday. So no, doesn't, doesn't at all support so, my theory. Okay. Because I was going to say, remind me who is, because we watched these movies weeks before sometimes we record and I forget. Was it her birthday? It was. Or her niece? Garrett's girlfriend's birthday played by, I believe, Leighton Meester. <gasps> yes. Yes, you're right. Okay. So the writer, Jeff to to La Tulip. Yeah. He's a close friend of the producer, Dave Neustadter, and this movie is based on Dave's real life long distance relationship with a former girlfriend. Hmm. So I'm curious how many of these things attract or right. he made up. When I heard that, I wondered, is the Charlie Day character the writer in that? Ooh. Right. That's a good that's a good note. So of the writing what notes do you have that stuck out for you in this film? The first thing I wanted to mention is the meat cute is when he ruins her attempt at a centipede high score. And it stuck out to me because there's no real reason for him being that much of a total asshat. She is obviously going to do well, and he really just kind of forces himself between her and the screen. And it r really kind of bumped me because. I think if it was a dude, fisticuffs may have ensued. It was really a remarkably rude thing to do. It sets up that she has the high score and they have some tension and back and forth. But I just felt that was an, a, a strange setup for him to be such a jerk. But maybe, maybe there was something that explained it with his character and I just missed it. Right. So he put the quarter up on the machine, the universal signal for I get the next game. At least when we were youths. Right. Well, are, is there even an arcade anywhere? <laughs> well, yeah, well, they've come back. Now it's retro. I don't know if they, they probably have an app on their phone. <laughs> to call next. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I took it as he tripped and bumped her. Oh, okay. Maybe I missed that. Or perhaps Justin didn't sell the trip well enough. But yeah. Okay. That would make sense. It, like an accidental. Yeah. Jerk maneuver. Yeah. Got it. That's what I got. All right. Uh, okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. What you got next? Well, I, I will mention that Charlie Day plays Charlie Day. <laughs> As right? you say, he does in, in everything. Yeah, which makes me want to cast him in something totally different. I, I'm sure he's got range there. We should see it. <laughs> you want to put him in a in like a serious epic drama? Right. It's kind of funny, though. The um, I actually do like the bit about the walls being thin because that's true and you live in cheap apartments. Mm-hmm. But instead of it just being the normal gag 
of, oh, you can hear them through the wall and maybe somebody says, you stop that. Or they're like, I can't hear a thing. He's an active participant. So he's kind of like the DJ in this interaction. And, and I really like that. And there's good writing and fun comic delivery. We maybe don't think of Drew Barrymore for her comic timing as well. But when at one point she yells, uh, like, Dan, take me to Berlin. Mm-hmm. And so he cues the the, the uh, music from the Top Gun soundtrack, which uh, from a writing perspective is dangerous to put a plot point around getting a specific song because that buys that ties you into spending some serious coin. Right. And I told you that because it's, it's Garrett who likes Top Gun, right? Yes. Okay. So... <laughs> I was in my research I was doing, I saw that the writer was going on a, he had a, like a two minute rant or something on YouTube. And I noticed as I'm listening to his rant, I'm, you know, you naturally kind of look in the back of people's rooms, you know? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. And I do at least. He had the Top Gun poster on his wall and I went, <laughs> oh, so he's a yeah. little bit of Garrett and a little bit of um, Charlie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So they also have some, you know, the classic humor of that you don't see so much anymore of someone accidentally dressing like Hitler. <laughs> so I don't know if that goes in the couldn't be made today category or not. I thought it was a funny joke, mm-hmm. right? That Charlie Day's character, who I think is Dan, but I will probably refer to as Charlie, doesn't realize when he's adjusting his mustache, what it looks like, especially with the hair right, and the outfit, which that's kind of the joke is he's that, but you just don't see Hitler humor anymore. Right. And I liked how they explained why he had the, he was like, well, I was shaving it and then it got a little bit too short on this side. So I did a little bit more on this side and then I did a little bit more on this side and then I did, (laughs) I had to even it out. And so he just kept, and then. It was funny. And the reason he's an idiot is because most people, when they get to Hitler, just shave it all off. Right. <laughs> right. But he just leaned in. Right. Um, the, 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 um, the dartboard where you miss the dartboard by 12 feet and just hit the wall. Eh, you know, that's just kind of a little bit common. But I also like the recurring bit of the dry humping. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Of it, her sister. Right. And brother-in-law. And I loved the line, Maya statue. (laughs) Yeah, they basically, when Christina Applegate wanted her daughter to just like be quiet, would just, yeah, like it was a game. We're going to play the statue game. (laughs) So I wonder, when did Old School with Will Ferrell and Vince Vaughn come out? Are you talking about earmuffs? Yes, earmuffs. (laughs) I was thinking who came first because Maya statue reminded me of earmuffs. I totally, yeah. So from a structural standpoint, one of the things I like that the writer did was there was a point where she says, or he says, I forget which, I think it's she, I'm leaving in six weeks. So this puts a time pressure, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's good to compress, to make make drama is to put people under pressure. And that's one way is establishing that time. And of course, we have the distance pressure, right? And there's also social pressure because her sister, played by Christina Applegate, rightfully suspicious of this guy as we see later in the film for good reason right so i think they set up in this really lighthearted comedy they really set up a tremendous amount of pressure on the relationship right which is kind of interesting because it's a lot of the film is just kind of fun comedy slapstick again hitler jokes but they do set this up where there is a lot of pressure on these two and also there's there's her writing 
which in 2010, I thought it was good that they acknowledged that newspapers were dying already. It was interesting. I made a note that they referred to the New York Sentinel instead of the New York Times, but then they name-checked the San Francisco Chronicle. So I thought that was odd. Either you go Times and Chronicle or you go Sentinel and Guard or something. It was odd that they, they did that. But obviously, she's going to ha- it's going to be a struggle to find work. So I thought that was, uh, that was good. They put both of the characters under a tremendous amount of pressure. They also introduced what I think is natural when you're not around your person is jealousy. And they each had someone, you know, a coworker or someone in their life that, you know, they were talking about to the other one. And that natural, I think, inkling of, oh, so you're spending so much time with Jenny or whoever. Right. It was frustrating as a viewer because you're rooting for those kids. But I think it was realistic that their friends are like, oh, no, she's totally sleeping around you. Oh, yeah, you know, he's, he's on top of some bimbo right now. Yeah, exactly. You you mentioned the dry humping, and so under sets I have the table. <laughs> it's an important table. Yes, this table gets a lot of action. <laughs> the, <laughs> Christina Applegate's uh, yeah. dining room table. I, I wonder if, if the uh, set carpenters put a little extra... Uh, bracing in there to make sure it was safe for everyone. <laughs> was the no open door policy? Is Charlie going number two, I think, and he leaves the door open? Y- yes. So from a sense perspective, I wanted to give credit for the pocket door. Yes. I love pocket doors. They're a real efficient use of space. They're in this tiny apartment in New York. And so there's a pocket door to the restroom. And Charlie Day is uh, doing a number two on the toilet, and he wants the door open. Now, on the face of it, that may seem ridiculous, but having lived with a bunch of 20-something guys, right? Yeah, uh, I could see there, like, it's plausible there's an idiot that would do that. But I also, I, I see his friends, you know, taking matters into their own hands to stop that behavior. Credit to Charlie Day, because it looked like he was, you know... Sons under Ponce when he was shooting that scene. I'm sure he had a sock on or something, yeah. but he, he went, you know, semi-Monty. I enjoyed the banter between the boys, the three, yes. the, Justin and, and who was the, oh, Jason Sudeikis. Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, that's now, so funny. Now, I have to say, this is one of those eerie callbacks that should be in the trivia. You'll notice later in the film, he sports a Ted Lasso mustache. In this film. You're right, he does. Yeah. I, I don't think it stood out to me because I'm so used to him being Seeing dead. him with that, that mustache, yeah. Oh my gosh. So that right. was awesome. So 10 years before Lasso, he, he was rocking that mustache. Who knows? Maybe the producers of Ted Lasso saw, saw that film. That's hilarious. When they were reviewing his work. And you were mentioning um, kind of cliched scenes. There was a scene under costumes. I have the scene in the, uh, right. the spray tan place. The spray tan place. Yeah, pretty, pretty classic uh, spray tan mishap. <laughs> Yeah. Um, there was a a a joke that was kind of edgy. I thought it was funny, but it was maybe not. There's a point where when we first see the character of Aaron, played by Drew Barrymore, in the bar where she's going to meet Garrett, her friend is there and wants them to go hang out with these frat guys. That's what they look like. And the friend's like, okay, well, I'm going to go without you. And, and Aaron yells, have fun being in the accused. 
which was an edgy, edgy joke. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that might fall in the couldn't be made today. Yeah, let's category. not make that joke. Yeah. Wow, oof. isn't it amazing? Because 2010, that was only 12 years or 13. Well, 13 years ago now. How quickly that is no longer. I mean, was it funny in 2010? Well, I wondered too generationally because I saw the I was in college when the accused came out. Yeah. I saw it with a bunch of my lady friends. Oh. So yeah, that was a little rough. So it, again, it could be era. It could be that some people didn't even catch the joke, but I definitely heard that. I'm like, ooh, wow, yeah. I'm jumping all over the place here, but I Let's really liked the edit when she goes out to San Francisco, and we have a landscape wide shot of the Brooklyn Bridge, and then it dissolves, and now it's the Golden Gate, which I ooh, thought nice. was a great way to show us. Okay, we just saw him. Now we're going to see her, but we put you in the proximity of where she is, which is the, both iconic bridges. And I would say most people watching the film have a good idea of, oh, now we're in San Francisco. And I thought that was cool. Yeah. And a, a bridge by its very nature allows you to travel from one location that would be hard to get to to another. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of going the distance right mm -hmm. there in two locations that are hard to get to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I like oh, yeah, that yeah. One. good job, Nanette. So does anything else stand out for you? When it came to costumes, I wanted to give a tip of the cap to the hot wing continuity person where in the bar, Aaron has hot wing sauce on her and they got the continuity right there. Mm -hmm. But at one point, Aaron says Garrett has good hair. And I want to ask, does he really? What don't you like about Justin's hair? I don't know. I just don't know if I call it good. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's okay here. I don't have hair. He's got more than I do. I'm not being <laughs> yeah, critical. I, I think you're a little jealous on her. Uh, maybe so. <laughs> All right. Any head trauma? Do we have any head trauma? We have a couple incidents. The the classic head trauma, Amy hurls the door into Garrett's face. That's his, his girlfriend at the beginning of the film. Uh -huh. And he gets he gets her birthday wrong and they fight and she throws the door as she's leaving and whacks right. him in the face. Mm hmm and this maybe isn't strictly head trauma, although I'm not sure how we would do the biology or physiology of cakes. Mm -hmm. But there is a cake that did not survive Aaron and Garrett's drunken shenanigans <laughs> at 50 minutes in that I, I think that's an honorary head trauma. And you as a recent baker took great offense to this because they walk into the kitchen and there's this beautifully iced frosted cake. That obviously somebody made with the intention of probably an event. A it looked birthday. like maybe a birthday, yeah. Right, or a dinner at, le at the very least, like they made dessert for dinner. And these two start just kind of dipping a finger, which most people wouldn't object to. One, maybe two fingers. But these two keep going. And you, even <laughs> before the cake got destroyed, went, hey, that's somebody's cake they made. Yeah. Way uh off the frosting. <laughs> So this is a public service announcement. <laughs> if I've made a cake and you come up and start taking the frosting off with your finger, I may have to step in. <laughs> All right. Did these two get a smooch? Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. Gin here in, in there, there in were New York and San Francisco. Smoochies in there. So actually pre-Aaron, Garrett and Amy make out on the couch at two minutes. Mm -hmm. Garrett kisses Aaron after using their bong at 1222. 
They also kiss on their dinner date at 2240 and then more during the subsequent dating montage. They kiss during goodbye sex, then at the airport, and finally at 13625, they kiss at the concert. Is this where we mentioned that during the filming of this movie, Drew and Justin were dating? That would be a good time to mention it. <laughs> so they had no problem with all this, this affection. And presumably they brought their own bomb. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I forgot that part of the movie, apparently. <laughs> um, how about a driving review? So we didn't see a whole lot of driving. I will say that the 2001 Subaru Outback establishes that her sister is fully a left coaster. And his 97 Toyota Camry is perhaps the least sexy car possible. Right. But in New York City, you probably need to have a car that you don't care if it gets banged, like when parking, and if it gets broken into or, you know, sideswiped. Yeah. And it's small for parking. Sure. I'm, I'm, I, off the top of my head, I might be able to come up with some things, but I'm pretty sure if he tried hard, he could find one that would fit all those criteria, yet not be the same car that my grandmother drove. <laughs> okay. So. Maybe his grandmother left it to him. Yeah. So she may have. very special. It smells like Grammy. Yeah. <laughs> like Avon's rose hips lotion. That's awesome. And then the, this part is not strictly driving related, but I did notice that they took Southwest to New York City and I thought, no way in heck does Southwest fly to New York. I mean, not only is it in their name, but they, they were completely West Coast. I was wrong. I did some research. And in 2010, they did fly to LaGuardia. So you could well, take a Southwest flight from uh, San Francisco to LaGuardia. So uh, my apologies to the uh, filmmakers for me um, having some bad thoughts about them for a few minutes. <laughs> well, they've been redeemed. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. All right. Going the Distance came out in 2010. Its budget was $32 million. Domestically, it only made about half at 17.8. Worldwide, it recouped a little bit at 43.6. So they at least got their initial investment. Although we've been doing some investigating and it is said that marketing a film is the same price as production. So if that was true in this case, they did not get their money back. And adjusted for inflation today, that domestic take of 17.8 would be like 20 million. I find that surprising. I thought this movie was funny and it was heartfelt. I mean, I really did think this was a very good film. Well, and I think in 2010, Drew Barrymore and Justin Long, I would have thought would have been a, a pretty good draw. I think, yeah, that was maybe a while after his I'm a Mac, I'm a PC commercials. But yeah, he would have been, on, but Drew Barrymore, that's a fairly big draw. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, people didn't agree. Their IMDb score is 6.3 out of 10. On Rotten Tomatoes, critics gave it 54% and audiences agreed in giving it 52%. Maybe that's why Nanette went back to documentary. Right. She's like, okay. Because <laughs> I do believe that I know a lot of people like Killer Sally. I have not seen it yet. I did see Hillary and it was very good. And like I said, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee was, was very good. So, yeah, I think she, <laughs> she said I'm going to stick to documentaries. <laughs> so 
All right. Now the cynic in me says our our documentaries basically found footage narrative films that you're not expected to make money on. Well, I mean, we can look into the uh, well, we can't because Killer Sally was on Netflix, so we don't know right how much. But I could look at least the budget. Hillary, I think, was on Amazon Prime. And I think the John McAfee one was on Netflix. So. But I was thinking, you, you know, partly just being snarky, but also I, I did think about it, that there's probably less pressure to bring in Big Gate for a documentary than there would be for, like, this rom-com. I was curious whether that's, you know, kind of subconscious or even a conscious choice from a filmmaker about where to put their efforts. Because, you know, once you go down the road, as we've heard from Dak Shepard of, of making kind of a commercial theatrical release film, expectations are high. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. Like I said, I, I didn't see Killer Sally, so I can't speak to that. Hillary, you have the obstacle of getting her and Bill and Chelsea and different people around them to agree to participate and then how forthwith will they be. And then with the John McAfee one, I worried for the lives of the camera people. (laughs) Yeah. With Hillary, that's where I was talking about. It's a narrative film with found footage because I don't think you get Bill and Hillary to participate unless your narrative matches theirs. But with the McAfee, when you said that, I thought of when Pete Berg talks about scouting in South America and they got held up at gunpoint while scouting locations. So, yeah, you got to be careful with some of these locations, even if you're you know, doing a film with The Rock. I guess I just was trying to contextualize that this is not a Ken Burns where somebody's just looking through archives and putting right, it right. in an order. These other documentaries, you still... Like with a script, you have it. You know what's going to be said. You know right. what the story is going sure, to be. Sure. But speaking personally with a documentary, right. you may not know if you're going to get the interview that you need to push forward the point that you want to. Yeah, I guess maybe I should have phrased that a little bit differently. I think for documentaries, perhaps the emphasis is less on gate, at, you know, box office gate and more on the reviews on how it's received. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I'm sorry. I was probably just being really sensitive, (laughs) standing up for my fellow documentarians. It's not all easy. Sorry, I didn't mean to be throwing shade (laughs) at the documentarians. I was just noticing that that difference. So, um, Although you do point out, when can you look back and and think of a documentary film that took in, like, you know, crazy millions of dollars? You know, I'll be honest, my guess is it would be religious right film. Although maybe some people might argue that's not a documentary, but I would think you'd have to have like a really strong and kind of rabid almost fan base that that would show up, put butts in seats. Whereas I think, you know, most people watched like the 100 foot wave. We like that, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't like it was bringing people to the Regal Cinema. Right. Exactly. All right. A little bit off track. Let's see. This one is comes under two hours at 142. It is rated R. It is a rom-com and it is a new line cinema production. So I think it did that just about, oh, we watched it on HBO Max. So it's free with a subscription that wraps it up for going the distance. 
remember to look at our social media, look at the five films that we're talking about this month and make your guess as to what our monthly theme is so you can win some prizes and some kudos and some shout outs. And never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 